Open your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John, the very first chapter, is where we'll begin this week, though we will not camp out solely in 1 John. But I do want to give a brief review of last week. We continue our series on authentic church, and last week we begun a two-part message on biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship. And last week, if you were here, you'll remember we talked about positional unity and practical unity. And we said positional unity was a work of God that was based in our salvation. And we said practical unity was not a guarantee if we had positional unity. And practical unity is based on two things, service and fellowship. And as we'll see this morning, service is an integral part of genuine fellowship. Fellowship is with God and with other believers. There's two aspects to genuine Christian fellowship. It is fellowship with the triune God, and it is fellowship with other saints, other believers. Fellowship with God is a fact. Its basis is your salvation. You were brought into the fellowship. You were adopted as a child, as an heir of Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in the fellowship. It's primarily a fact in that sense. It's not an experiential thing. You are in the fellowship. One of the things you will hear Christians say, and I've said it, and perhaps you have as well, is if we're struggling with something, we say, well, I'm not in fellowship with God. I need to get back to fellowship with God. That's not quite accurate. As I said, fellowship with God is not an experiential thing in that sense. It's an eternal fellowship that you were brought into on the basis of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so if you are in the fellowship, you are in the fellowship eternally. And if you are not in the fellowship, there is no sense, experientially or otherwise, in which you are in the fellowship. And then, so it might be more accurate to say, not I'm moving in and out of the fellowship. You don't move in and out of the fellowship. You are in or you are out. It might be more accurate then to say, I'm not experiencing the full joy of my fellowship with God. But don't say you're out of fellowship with God. If you were once in the fellowship, you still are and you always will be. And we talked about last week the source of fellowship. And we said that was the gospel. And if you look at 1 John verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And the proclamation of the gospel, we said, was not a me- an end in and of itself, but rather a means to an end. Look at verse 3 again. That you too may have fellowship with us. The gospel is not the end of the story. The gospel is an explanation and an invitation to a fellowship. And the point of sharing the gospel and understanding the gospel is that we understand our fellowship and we invite others to partake in that fellowship. That's the source of fellowship. We also talked about the foundation of fellowship. That it is based not in our works, not in our merit, and not in our righteousness, but based solely on the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
We looked at verses 6 and 7 and we said that there is a false fellowship. One that of people say they are in the fellowship, but their deeds give them away. They walk not in light, but in darkness. And you'll remember we spent an extensive amount of time talking about how Christians are always categorized as being in the light. That means in the fellowship. And if you do the deeds of the darkness, you are forfeiting the joy of that fellowship and you do them in full light. You do them with full revelation of what sin is and what its consequences are. But you are not in the darkness. And it says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship. So that's talking about our, our fellowship with other believers. And what does it say is the basis of that fellowship? The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That is the foundation of our fellowship. And that means you're either in or you're out, but you don't waffle back and forth. The basis of fellowship, as Peter would say, is that we are divine partakers. And this morning, I want to continue on that thought. You'll remember last week, I gave kind of two preliminary thoughts on fellowship. I said fellowship was ground in the triune God. And that there was perfect fellowship with God. And they had separate roles and separate wills, but that those wills were complementary and modeled to us perfect fellowship. Secondly, I said fellow, we were created for fellowship. And we looked at how God said it is not good that man should be alone. And he made a suitable helper for him, verse 2. And when that fellowship was broken in Genesis 3, God sought after Adam to seek to restore that fellowship. Verse 9, when Adam is hiding, he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam is hiding, and in chapter 3, verse 15, this of Genesis, there's the promise of a coming seed of the woman who would restore that fellowship because we were created for fellowship. That's the source of fellowship. That's the basis for fellowship. This morning I want to look at several aspects more of fellowship. The first one is the essence of fellowship. The essence of fellowship. The word used in Greek actually means common. Commonalities or sharing. And that is the very nature of fellowship, is sharing. Not necessarily common, meaning the exact same, because as we'll see this morning, all the gifts that we have been given are unique. But a common salvation, a common love of Christ, a common adherence to His Word. It was Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands in John 14. And so there's a commonality here. And, and what that leads to at a base level, there's commonality in Christ. That that leads to is a sharing in practice and a common needs and common meeting of these needs. So I go back to our main text for this whole series. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And you know verse 42. Well, that's what we've been, we've been studying and we've spent several weeks now just trying to understand all that this verse explains to us. Acts chapter 42. But look at how things turn out. In verse 42, we see the commonality. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. But then look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's the essence of fellowship, that they had 
all things in common. It is the result of this commonness that leads to verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as many as any had need. That is the basis of fellowship. It's about sharing. It's about seeing a need and meeting it. And it, I, I explained last week, this isn't socialism. This isn't communism. They didn't pool all the resources into one hierarchy like that. It was rather, very simply, a brotherly love saying, I notice a need in my fellow Christian. I can meet that need. That's fellowship, commonness, sharing. And in fact, it's that sharing that is modeled for us in Acts chapter 2, the very beginning of the church, that is modeled throughout the book of Acts and even in the church to today. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There's that word again, common. Please notice at the beginning it says, we're of one heart and soul. This is a fellowship we're talking about. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles, giving their, their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So what is the result of this one heart and one soul and one mind? What is the result of this being in the fellowship, this believing, this gathering of believers? What is the result? You say you believe these things. You claim to be in the fellowship. Remember that was 1 John 6. If you claim to be in the fellowship, how will I know? How will I know? There's a tangible outworking of truth in the Christian and it is sharing. It is commonalities. It is giving to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as there is need. That is the tangible or the practical outworking of the foundational truth of one heart and one soul. In fact, their sharing was so pervasive in their thought patterns, they didn't even see it as sharing. Look at what it says. No one said any of these things belonged to him was his own. In other words, they were so convicted to give to the ministry and to give to others in the ministry, they didn't even see it as their own. They didn't go home and say, wow, look at all of my things which I gave away. They said, no, we're in a fellowship. I didn't give anything away. It's just as much yours as it is as mine. I saw a need and I met it. In fact, sharing had so changed their thought patterns, the idea of having anything to themselves was foreign. Now, of course, they had their own, own things, but the idea is, is that they didn't hold on to anything. They didn't dole out their things and just kind of share what they could. They didn't see it like that at all. They said they didn't even consider it their own. It was just part of the ministry, part of being in a fellowship. They weren't saying, oh, I tithe this much and I gave three hours of my time to help whoever. They just did it. They didn't calculate it. 
They understood that everything in a fellowship is common life. And when two people have a common Savior, they have everything in common, don't they? The attitude was, what's mine is yours and your need is my need. And if I can use my resources to help you, that's just part and parcel with being in a fellowship. In fact, Luke, the author of Acts, gives us a specific example. Verse 36. Joseph, in fact, you know him as Barnabas. That's not Jesus' father or anything. That's Barnabas. Joseph, he sold a field and brought in the money. He just went home and sold a huge plot of land and gave away the money. He said he laid it at the apostles' feet. That, that is simply a simple way of saying he gave it to the church. What were the apostles doing? Back up to verse 40, 33. They were preaching. The apostles are giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is, they were preaching to the people. And they understood what Paul would later say to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. That is the topic of all good preaching is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's gospel. And so they are preaching to the people. And this guy, Joseph Barnabas, says, I have a few extra things. I'll go home and sell them and bring in the money. That is an example of someone in true fellowship who hears the apostles preaching and so grows in knowledge and grace. In fact, it even says a great grace was on them all. And he finds something valuable to him, sells it, and gives it away. Let me very quickly relate Luke's second story to you. Luke, a very talented author and historian, has this way. He very often will bring two stories together that contradict each other for contrast sake. Keep reading in Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is this that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. I would think so. The young men rose, wrapped him, carried him out, and buried him. This is Luke's second story. This is a person who did not give everything. He had one foot, if it were, on eternal things and one foot on temporal things. He wanted to be part of the fellowship. He wanted to be part of the ministry. He wanted to be seen in the church. He wanted to be associated with those people. And he wanted to be associated with the apostles' teaching. But he wasn't sold out to the idea of an eternal kingdom. He he still wanted something that would be earthly good to him. We don't know, but said that's all I can give. You know the scary thing? Ananias' giving much closely resembles our own. We do not, like Barnabas, give away everything we can. We meticulously count out our 10%. Which we feel is kind of the the bare minimum. We want to be associated with the people of God. 
We give what we can from the excess column, but we hold on to just enough. After our meals are paid for, when our retirement fund is topped up, once the renovations are done, we are happy to give to God a small piece of what is left. By the way, I'll say as a note, 10% is never prescribed in the New Testament. That was an Old Testament thing given to the Israelites, and I might add, it was not written with a culture of such excess like this in mind. And it is never repeated in the New Testament. Though the Jews at the time of the New Testament were doing it, it is not actually given as an instruction to the church. But but it's this type of thinking that plagues our giving. That where we have one foot on earthly things and one foot on eternal things, That type of sacrificial giving that's so exemplified in Barnabas for us is somewhat lost on us. That is giving so you actually have to make a real sacrifice. And yet Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In Matthew 19, he told the rich young ruler, go sell All you have and follow me. And you remember the rich young ruler left, for he had many things. Why? Why did Jesus say these things? He was explaining to us how to live within the body of Christ. His prayer in John 17 for the unity. And he taught us while he was here how to live in that unity we share. That's the fellowship. That's the nature of fellowship is sharing, is giving. It is giving of your time. It is giving of your resources. It is giving of everything earthly that you have so it counts for something eternal. That's what it means to be in a fellowship. The nature of fellowship, sharing. Secondly, I want to talk this morning about the risk to fellowship. The risk to fellowship, in one word, is sin. Sin is a risk to fellowship. One word, it's a danger to fellowship. Now I talked earlier and I mentioned in some detail last week that once you are in the fellowship, you cannot move in or out of the fellowship. And so once you are in the fellowship, you are in the fellowship eternally. Nothing can pull you out of that fellowship. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is Paul in Romans 8. That's just theological language for saying, God brings people in the fellowship. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was raised at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's the foundation for fellowship. A common salvation resting on the finished work of Jesus Christ. 1 John verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses our sin. That's the foundation for our fellowship. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the fellowship of believers, and that includes sin, how is sin a danger to fellowship? Shouldn't there not be a danger to this type of fellowship? I mean, if this fellowship is eternal, if it is the result of God, it is an indomitable fellowship. It is an unbreakable fellowship. It is unassailable and an invincible fellowship. After all, when Jesus set up the church, did he not say that the church was to stand as such that even the powers of hell could not stand against it? So how can it be that there is a danger to this fellowship? How can anything be a danger to this type of fellowship? Well, in a sense, that's true. Sin will not take you out of the fellowship. First John confirms that. Every time you sin, it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. If you are in the fellowship, you are forgiven. And as soon as you sin again, it is under the blood of Jesus Christ and you are not removed from that fellowship. And so in a foundational sense, sin is not a danger to the reality of the fellowship. Nor is sin a danger to the eternality of a fellowship because there will come a day when sin and evil and death is destroyed and cast into hell and we will continue to fellowship forever in eternity. Sin, however, is a huge danger experientially to the fellowship. Let me explain what I mean. You will still be in the fellowship, but you will not experience the joys of being in that fellowship. You will not experience the blessings of being in that fellowship. Sin will destroy your joy, will inhibit your blessing, your power. It will diminish your usefulness. Sin disrupts every category of the fellowship. We talked a little bit about Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Their sin was greed. And it affected their ability to live in the fellowship. In fact, it affected their ability to live at all. But it also would have affected everyone else in that fellowship. When you struggle with sin, whether it be greed or anything else, you are hurting the fellowship from the inside. You are in the fellowship, but you have become, through your sin, a danger to the very fellowship you partake in. And like in the case of Ananias, your sin heaps judgment upon you. Sin is a danger to the fellowship. And as a fellowship, we all, not the pastor, not the church leadership, but all the members of the church are to be involved in keeping the fellowship pure by purging sin that is amidst in the fellowship. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. If your brother... So that is speaking of somebody within the fellowship. This is verse 15. If your brother sins against you, and you go through the whole process, go tell him his faults. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. If he does not repent, you go take it to the church. First two or three, and then to the church. 
And then it says at the bottom, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. What does that mean? Let, let me put it in the vernacular for you. Kick him out. Purge sin from the fellowship to keep the fellowship pure. That pure. So you can actually be in the fellowship and be sinful and disrupt the fellowship and thus be a danger to the fellowship to such a degree that to maintain the fellowship means getting you out. That, by the way, is a good reason to exercise church membership because please notice it is not the pastor's sole responsibility nor the elder's sole responsibility to exercise church discipline. It is the whole church. And when somebody comes into membership, the people that are already in membership have now made a responsibility to that person biblically to keep them pure. Let me give you one perhaps more practical way that sin is a danger to the fellowship. Sin will diminish your evangelism. One of the responsibilities of the fellowship is to evangelize, right? We know that well, the Great Commission. Go into all the world. We are supposed to evangelize. But if there is sin in your life, you will not be able to glorify God in your evangelism. Why? Because our message is one of hope and one of change. How you were a child of darkness but are now a child of light. How you have been rescued. How you have been redeemed, revived. And that message loses all its substance if you don't look changed. If you look like the darkness, what business have you advertising for the light? If you're hopeless and living in sin and you go saying, I have been rescued, people are naturally going to ask, rescued from what? You don't seem rescued at all. You're no better off than I. Our message is to be holy, to be set apart as God is holy. If we looked exactly like the world, then this Christ we proclaim is of no significance. Look again at Acts chapter 5. The Lord Himself takes the life of the believer. He was in essence saying, I want a pure church. That is why Peter in his epistle said, Judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. Because the people you are witnessing to will look at your life, and if your life doesn't model Christ, doesn't model holiness, they're not going to care what you have to say. No, sin in every area is absolutely devastating to the fellowship. Sin is a danger to the fellowship. Being in a fellowship, however, comes with responsibilities. I want to look at the responsibility of the fellowship. If you are in the fellowship this morning, you have this responsibility. One word again. Serving. This is the responsibility of every believer. How do I serve the church? That's the question. We are supposed to love each other, right? I mean, in fact, this is how they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. That again in First John. So our, the question that we must continually ask ourselves, how do I manifest that love week to week? Day to day, month to month, in the lives of others in the fellowship. 
Let me give you two ways that we serve the fellowship. One specifically, and that is through our spiritual gifts. And one generally, a general acting in a serviceable manner. But first, specifically, you have been given a gift, a spiritual gift. And as I said last week, spiritual gifts are not for you, they're for the people around you, they're for the fellowship. And if you look at Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, you will find lists of these gifts. You will also notice that these gifts are not the, these lists are not the exact same. And that is simply to give us the point that these lists are not exhaustive. They are not a series of individual gifts. They, they are categories of gifts. They are, they are broad categories from which we have our gift. Please notice I said gift. Singular, not gifts plural. Every person only has one spiritual gift. And it's a unique blend from all these Categories, teaching gifts and serving gifts and, and so on. It is a unique blend orchestrated by God, designed and given specifically to you that you may use that for the benefit of service in the fellowship. It's like God had a, a paintbrush and he took a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of these, all from different categories of gifts and designed one gift, singular and gave it to you that you may serve in the fellowship with it. That is a specific way in which you serve the fellowship. You use your spiritual gift to serve others in the fellowship. But, but there is also a second way we serve, perhaps a more general way. And let me just say at the outset, we as a fellowship have a responsibility to the lost. That is, people who are not saved, Right? We, we have a responsibility to give them the gospel. We have a responsibility to model Christ. We have a responsibility to our government, to our nation, and so on. You have a biblical, God-given responsibility to your employer, right? Do all your work heartily as unto the Lord, Titus says. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about a very unique, very important responsibility that we have within the fellowship to other brothers and sisters in Christ. We must act in a general way to the people we will spend eternity with. Matthew 18. You have the very first New Testament instruction to the church. We are just in verses 15 through 18. Go back just a little bit. Verse 4. Verse 4. This is the very first instruction given to the church. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Please notice this about the fellowship. We enter like children. That is simply to say we come with nothing. No accomplishments, no merits, nothing. We come as children. And so the instruction given to the church here is to treat other believers like children. We're all children. We all came like children. And when we get in the fellowship, that doesn't change. We're still children. But there's an important principle here. Look at verse 5 again. The idea stated here is how you treat another one of these children is how you treat Christ. 
How you treat the people in the fellowship is how you treat Christ. This makes sense because the Holy Spirit lives within each member of the body of Christ. And so Christ comes to us in every other believer. No Christian has less of the Holy Spirit than another one. No Christian has more of the Holy Spirit than another one. And so if the Holy Spirit lives in each individual Christian, then we have a model of Christ before us, and how we treat that person is how we treat God Himself. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, this is Jesus speaking, believe in me, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We are responsible to other believers to keep them from sin and them to keep us from sin. This is a severe warning. This is Jesus, as I said. This is his first instruction to the church. And what he is in essence saying, it would be better for you to die a horrible death. It would be better for you to have a chain wrapped around your neck, a rock around your ankle, and that your lungs fill with water and you drown than you cause a child of mine to stumble. Why such a severe warning? Well, we talked about it already. Sin is devastating to the fellowship. It cripples it. It destroys it. And you want nothing to do with sin in the fellowship, either in your life or in the life of somebody else. Jesus continues, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by him by whom the temptation comes. That's Jesus saying, look, we know that there are temptations in the world. Woe to the world because of its temptations to sin. We know that is going to happen. The last place you want to be tempted to sin is in the church with the fellowship of other believers. We expect that to some degree from the world. And Jesus says, woe to the world. Verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What is Jesus saying? This is what he is saying to his church. His church. Not my church, not your church, not our church. His church. This is what he is saying. Deal with sin. Deal with it immediately. Deal with it in the utmost severity. Do not put it off. Do not leave it for another time. Deal with sin. Jesus is saying deal with it drastically. He is saying to his church, you must be ruthless in your execution of sin or it will be ruthless in its slaying of you. It must be purged from your life and make sure you are never the cause of sin in somebody else's life. Jesus directs this order to us. This is our responsibility. This is your responsibility and mine to cut sin off from the fellowship of believers in both your life and the lives 
of those around you. And as a side note, I must say, do not limit this to a deliberate enticing of evil, like selling drugs to another Christian or something of, of that sort. That would certainly be included, but don't limit it to that. Sin does not have to be actively devised and sold, as it were. It simply gets transmitted through your life. If you struggle with anger, that will pass off to believers among you. If you struggle with lust, that will play out in the jokes you make, what you laugh at, the music you listen to. It rubs off on others and it causes them to stumble. It is a parasite. If you don't intentionally kill it and kill it completely, it reproduces and causes those around you to sin as well. And ultimately, as James says, it brings death when sin is full grown. This is the stern warning that Jesus brings. And that is the negative approach to the responsibility we all have in the fellowship. There are several other responsibilities, and let me just take a few minutes to, to say these, these are, these are more general and they are more positive in nature. The responsibilities that you and I have in the church. Confess to believers. Confess to believers. James 5 verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You might think with all the severity of sin and how we are to deal with it in the fellowship, you might think we're encouraged to hide it. Hide it from others and hide it from ourselves. Not at all. Not at all, James says. We are a fellowship of sinners. And you are responsible to have meaningful relationships within that fellowship where you can talk openly and honestly about your sin. That is part of dealing with your sin. Don't pretend you're not a sinner. James says, pray for one another. Pray for their war with the flesh. Pray for your brother and sisters in Christ. But do not hide your sin. It is your, it is your responsibility within the fellowship to confess your sin. It is your responsibility to encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Romans 14.9 So then let us pursue what makes peace for the mutual upbuilding. Romans 15.2 Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Jude 20 But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. See, the local fellowship is to be a fellowship of edification and encouragement, of building each other up. After all, if God lives in the lives of each individual believer, then He is in the process of sanctifying that person. And He has put us here in that fellowship with that person. And the church is very often the instrument God uses to guide another through sanctification, to encourage another believer in using their gifts and talents. So we need to recognize God-given strengths. We need to recognize spiritual growth. And we need to spur one another on to excellence by encouragement and edification that we may more clearly see the excellencies of Christ in His church. 
Thirdly, we are to forgive one another. This is your responsibility in the fellowship. Forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Your responsibility in the fellowship is to forgive one another. It is also to love one another. Your responsibility, Jesus says, within this fellowship, 1 John 3.11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, You have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 10.24, Stir one another to love and good works. In fact, look with me, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 22. Verse 22. Peter ties this idea with love beautifully. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another, love one another, love one another over and over and over again. The New Testament commands believers to love one another. And you might say, well, I'm not quite sure what that means. I get the general idea, but it's vague. How do I love one another? Peter says... It stems from a pure heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. It guides your actions. It directs them. It is the rudder and the propeller to your life is your heart. That is why scripture repeatedly warns you. Keep your heart pure. Proverbs 4.23 Guard your heart. How do you get a pure heart? Easy. Peter says. Comes from a pure soul. Very beginning of the verse. Having purified your souls. How do you get a pure heart? You have a pure soul. If you have a pure soul, you have a pure heart. It is the natural, unabating love for the saints of God will flow from that. And please don't miss this. Right in the middle of the verse, your obedience to the truth. How do you purify your soul? How do you purify your heart and that give you a foundation by which you can love your brothers? Obey the truth. You obey the truth and the truth will cleanse you. It will purify your soul and purify your heart and it will purify your love to others. Obey the truth. You owe it to your brothers and sisters in Christ to be a studier of God's word, to obey the truth and to love those, to love those that God has placed you in fellowship with. The last responsibility I want to look at this morning. Meet together. Did you know you have a responsibility to meet with other people in the fellowship? That is not something that the early church invented. That is a biblical command. We are to confront sin in the fellowship. We are to confess sin in the fellowship. We are to encourage and edify each other. We are to forgive each other. We are to love each other. And lastly, we are to meet together. 
we are called to meet together. Do not deprive one another. This in 1 Corinthians. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then Paul says, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I said last week the Christian life was not a Lone Ranger sport. When you separate yourself off from other believers, that is Satan's opportunity to move in in your life. You cut yourself off from the church, you open yourself up to Satan. Look at Hebrews 10.25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, some. 1 Corinthians 5.4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled, says 1 Corinthians 11.18, for in the place when you come together as a church, meeting together is what churches do. We are an assembly. We are an assembly of like-minded people. It is your responsibility to the fellowship of Christ to meet regularly and to meet consistently with other believers. And lastly, this morning, I want to look at the result of fellowship. The result of fellowship. Verse 4, if you're back in 1 John, the ultimate goal of fellowship, the result, joy. Joy needs to be a dominant theme in our lives. I mean real joy, the deep, unshakable joy that you only find in Christ. And that joy is elusive to those looking outside of Christ. It's not happiness. It's not always laughing. It is an unsearchable wealth of strength and an unquenchable feeling of security. It is the deep, abiding feeling to all those who live in the fellowship with Christ and with other believers. Jesus prayed these words to his Father, John 17:13. But now I am coming to you, speaking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus says as much the same in two chapters later, verse 11 of chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Our church needs to be characterized by joy. Our lives need to be characterized by joy, Christ's joy, and a full joy. As Paul would often say, finally, brothers, rejoice. This is the result of fellowship. It is the product of a true fellowship. I would challenge you to read through the book of Philippians this week and make a note of every time Paul is expressing joy. You will never see such a a richer example of it. You see, he loves Timothy. He loves Epaphroditus. He loves the church in Philippi. And they love him back. It is a beautiful look at the joy Paul had and he wrote it all while in prison. And it can be the joy that we all have in common. And it is that joy that Christ prayed for. There is one more aspect of fellowship. The symbol of fellowship. And we will look at that next week. Lord, we consider it an unsearchable honor to be placed in the fellowship. To be pulled from a world that is going to destruction. And to be moved into a family of a righteous judge. 
Lord, how we love you and how we love those around us in the fellowship. Lord, as Paul says in Romans 7, we still struggle with the flesh. Help us to struggle with the flesh openly. That we would confess our sin, that we would deal with our sin, that we would keep this fellowship pure. Be with us, Lord. Strengthen us, empower us by your Spirit to exercise our spiritual gifts to love one another, to serve one another, all for your glory and your fellowship. Be with us as we go out into the world this week. In Jesus' name, amen.